morning again. If you have a Bible, open it up to James. We're continuing our Faith Works series in the book of James. We'll be in chapter 4 today, which is on page 1013 in the Black Bibles. If you want to grab one of those Black Bibles that are under the chairs nearby, you can grab one of those and follow along with us. Uh, I want to thank, again, Stephen Watson for preaching last week. He did a great job. I was able to listen to uh, half of his sermon in the parking lot before I preached at Watershed, our sister church out there in, uh, in the Kempner, West Coppers Cove area. just want to remind you again, it was a great encouragement to me to be there and see that some of our regulars here have kind of drifted over there, encouraged them to partner with them. I want to encourage more of you, if you live on the west side of Fort Hood or out in Cove or out that direction, to prayerfully consider partnering with them as we try to multiply gospel-centered churches in the area. So I encourage you to consider that, Watershed Church out in Kempner. Um, we've in this series in James, been challenged a lot. Uh, James is kind of confrontational, maybe you might say, and throughout the book, he's challenged us that, that faith really looks like something, that faith is active. It is God's grace supernaturally working in our life. That's what faith is, and so faith works. Faith moves. It's not just a passive idea. It's transformational. It shakes up everything. This week, we're calling it Faith Submits. Faith submits. Do you remember in the passage last week? If you weren't here, I'll I'll read it to you. He said in chapter 4, verse 6 and 7, he gives more grace. It says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. So God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So, So that's motivation for us to submit to God, to trust him trust him, submitting to God. Uh, one of the ways I thought I should title the, the sermon this morning was let God be God. We don't get to be God, right? We're not God. God is God. And so we submit ourselves. We place ourselves under his care. He's the one in charge. Um, just this week, a dear friend uh, found out he, a few weeks ago, Fought cancer a couple of years and got a clean scan, was cancer-free, and then he was sick for a few weeks, went back, and the cancer has, has recurred. Um, and so he and his wife were just reeling from the news. He just shared the story with me this morning, actually, uh, just this morning. So he was going to eat, eat out with his wife. They're still just dealing, you know, obviously their world has been rocked. Cancer's come back. They're, they've got a lot of concerns, a lot of worries, a lot of suffering and uh, wrestling they're dealing with. Uh, as they're trying to find parking to go to this restaurant in Dallas, uh, a hobo comes up to him and says, hey, there's free parking over here, right? They were kind of wrestling with figuring out the paid parking, the different options. So this hobo is very nice. He comes up to them, this guy that's just kind of living on the street, says, hey, there's free parking for the restaurant over there if you want to go over there. He's eating a hamburger, and he says, hobo continues and begins to praise God for his provision. And the hobo says, God's just been taking care of me. God's been providing for all my needs. This lady just gave me a hamburger. I wonder if you've got a couple of dollars so I could buy a Coke. Uh, my friend's like, sure, man, I got, a, I got a couple of bucks for you to buy a Coke. That's great. Thanks for helping me find free parking. So he gives him a couple of dollars for his Coke. And the hobo keeps talking, keeps saying stuff. He keeps talking about how thankful he is for God's provision and how God always finds him a place to sleep and God always provides his meals. And he says, yeah, I don't really like begging, uh, but God's taking care of me. I know that everything's going to be okay in the future. I know that I'm going to be with Jesus someday and things are going to be a a whole lot better than they are now. I know this is just temporary. And my friend who's just still, still reeling from the recurrence of cancer, like God just spoke to me through 
this hobo. He even said, I'm not even sure if it was a human. You know, now he's questioning because <laughs> the message was so clearly from the Lord. God provides. God's going to take care of me. So this guy's testimony helped my friend, and of course my friend's testimony helped me, and I'm hoping now that it helps you. But, but there's this whole theme. There are these random little things. They seem random in the section we're going to read today. It's a transitional section. It's kind of a transition from one chunk that James was in last week, and we're going to a new chunk. And so you see kind of different ideas intersecting, but they're all, they're all sewn together with this idea that God is God, and we can trust him, and we should submit to his sovereignty, his godness. He, he's God. He's going to take care of us. And when we don't submit to him, it comes out in all kinds of negative, weird behavior. James is going to kind of speak at it from a negative standpoint in the text. So let's read verses 11 through 17 together. He says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. He's going to tie this to our submission to God. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are are you to judge your neighbor? Come now. You who say today or tomorrow will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. Let me pray and ask the Lord to help us. God, we ask for your help. We're all facing different things this morning, things that may may be something harder than we've ever faced before. For some of us, we're just facing the daily routine. For some of us, we're facing a gnawing feeling of meaninglessness or hopelessness. God, we we come to you asking for your help. We, We pray that you would speak to us through your word. We pray that you would encourage us, that you'd you'd build us up. We humble ourselves before you. We ask you to show us your grace. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I've said, James is is challenging throughout the book. I mean, the book is just one challenge after another. And I think really it hit a peak last week. James is a book of great conviction, a book that if you read it and come away not thinking of yourself as a sinner, you've read it wrongly, okay? So when you read James, you should be pushed and pressed and, and feel convicted and feel like there's something wrong with me. There's more wrong with me than I realize. And it reaches this peak where he says, but God gives more grace. So James has been hammering us and hammering us and hammering us. And he says, but God is gracious, but God is gracious. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Trust him. Trust him. We talk often about how it's, it's hard to recognize God's grace apart from recognizing our own sin, right? Uh, a lot of times you'll hear people talk about the way to share the good news of the gospel is to first share the bad news of our own sin, right? It's come to terms. For many of us, that's how we came to faith in Christ and his provision on the cross. We had to first recognize there's something wrong with me, to first admit sin, to first admit our own rebellion, our own inability to love people the way we know we're wired. We know we're supposed to love people, but we don't do it. And so there's a, a coming to terms with our own sinfulness. But sometimes it works the other way around too. Sometimes we see that God is gracious. And in seeing that God is gracious, that enables us 
to tell the truth about our own brokenness, right? If you don't believe that God is gracious, it might be hard for you to actually face your need and your brokenness. James reminds us, God is gracious. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So, so trust that he's good. I think there's two directions we go uh, with this desire to be God. Um, one direction we go is we see ourselves as too, uh, too negative uh, beyond redemption. You know, just we see ourselves as such a worm that there's no way that God could forgive us. And I've talked about this before. That's, that's kind of like, like saying my shame my sin, my darkness, my past, my skeletons in my closet are so big God can't handle me. That's a form of pride. It's another form of pride. The other side is just not recognizing there's anything wrong with us at all. That's the more obvious kind of pride. We see ourselves too positively. We buy into what our culture says that we should spend every morning looking in the mirror saying you're good enough, you're smart enough, and darn it, people like you, right? That's the gospel of the 21st century is you're awesome, right? The self-esteem movement. James is going to hammer us and say, no, you're not awesome, but you're awesome in Christ. God is gracious. He loves you. He's forgiven you. Jesus died on the cross to take your sins upon himself, and he gives you his resurrection life. So humble yourself before him. Submit to God. Trust that God can be God. The first thing I think we see is, again, I said these are kind of like transition statements all stacked together. First one is that we should submit to God's authority, his, his rule, Okay, he uses the terms law and judge, and so I think a summary word for that would be authority. God is king, we're not king. God speaks and says what is right and wrong. We don't get to say and judge what is right and wrong. We can only speak right and wrong with a derivative authority saying, God says this is right and wrong, but we don't get to take the place of God and say, I say what's right and wrong. And when we, when we make that jump, we become judgmental people. We become people that are then judging God's word and making our our own judgments and not letting God be God. Let's read 11 and 12 again. He says it this way in 11 and 12, 4, 11 and 12, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. So when you're speaking evil about each other, talking trash about somebody, when you're uh, destroying, defaming someone's character, says the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. Okay, so when we take it on ourselves to condemn other people, we're making ourselves a judge. In a way, we're saying the cross is not enough when we condemn other people. He goes on in verse 12, there's only one lawgiver and judge, and it's not us, right? It's not you, it's not me. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Now, we, we need to be careful here, here that we don't slide off into where our, our culture is at. Our, our culture, for the most part, says you should never, ever say anything about anybody is ever wrong, ever, 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 right? I don't believe that's what he's talking about. He's talking about the backbiting and the condemning and the judgmentalism that takes place in a local congregation. He talks specifically about judging your brother. I think that carries out to even how we speak of unbelievers. We just shouldn't speak in condemning ways. We shouldn't speak in judgmental ways. We shouldn't take on ourselves any any kind of presumption that we're a judge, that we have authority, that we're in charge, that we get to say what's right and wrong. Now, again, we can say the Bible says this, right? We can speak what the Bible speaks, and we can say, you know what, I, 
I don't, I don't think you should do that. I mean, the scripture would challenge you on that. This is what the scripture says. I think you should think about this. I'm worried about you. I love you. I don't want you to hurt yourself, right? I mean, we can, we can plead with people from the standpoint that certain things are wrong and certain things are right. That's okay. But we shouldn't slip into this judgmental, condemning, speaking evil of other people. And that's what James is talking about. And I think this is a supernatural line that we cannot walk apart from the Holy Spirit. Because our culture continues to descend into an anti-God's law sort of chaos, it's going to get more and more confusing. And we're going to want to run to one soundbite side or the other soundbite side, right? We're going to want to run and join the team that's always barking about how bad everything is. Or we're going to want to run and join the team that's like, hey, just be nice, right? I don't condemn people and be sweet about everything. There's this Holy Spirit line we need to walk where we say, yeah, there, there is such a thing as right and wrong, but I'm wrong too, and Jesus died for my sins. And we humble ourselves and appeal to God's grace and put ourselves in the place of a justified sinner, not a justified someone who never sins, right? And so that, that's what it means to submit to God's authority, to always be pointing to this outside authority, not, not to our own authority, but saying, he, he's the authority. His word is, is my authority, but I'm... I'm not the authority. I'm not the judge. I'm not the judge, but his word is authoritative. God is authoritative. God is the judge. His law can be trusted. I have a picture here of uh, a dad scolding a daughter, um, and I'm not implying here. Again, please don't take this too far. I'm not implying that you should never correct your children, okay? Please don't go there. We should correct our children. That's why God gave children parents. Uh, But I want to use this as an illustration. There's a survey that was done of parents uh, several years back asked parents to keep track of how many times they made negative uh, comments compared with co- uh, positive comments to their children. What would you think was the, uh, the ratio there? They, they admitted that they criticized 10 times for every time they said something favorable or positive. 10 negative comments for every one positive comment. They did another three-year survey in a city, a city school district, and the teachers were 75% negative. So apparently the parents were a lot worse than the teachers. Of course, now we've got the uh, self-esteem movement, and we don't have that problem anymore, right? This was back in the 80s when they did this survey. So now everything's fixed. We're never negative. Everything is okay now, right? I don't know. I I think we still struggle with being condemning with our language. I think we still struggle uh, with being overly negative. But again, there's this gospel line that we have to walk of saying, God has a law. God has a word. God gets to make rules. God is a judge. God gets to say this is wrong. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shouldn't perish but have everlasting life. And then 3.17, Jesus goes on. And he says, I, I didn't come in to judge the world but to save the world. But then he's clear, but, but judgment is coming. I mean, the story is that judgment is coming. When the apostles went and preached that Jesus rose from the dead, Very often, the preaching was, yeah, Jesus rose from the dead, and he's the guy that's going to come back and judge the world. Judgment's never absent from the picture. It's just we're not the judge. God is the judge. So Christianity balances those two things in a beautiful way that no other religion balances. Love to talk to you more if you're an adherent to another religion. If you think I'm off here, I've studied religion for a lot of years, so I'd I'd love to have that conversation with you. I, I don't think any other religion balances judgment and grace like Christianity does. 
A lot of religions have a lot to say about judgment. A lot of religions have a lot to say about grace and love and acceptance. Only Christianity balances those in a way that makes sense. It's coherent. God hates sin. God will judge sin. And God has judged sin in Jesus. So by faith in him, we can be redeemed. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And that's our hope. That he's the authority. He's in charge. We can trust him. We can submit to him. We can submit to his program. One of the things that's really weirded me out lately as I read the news and as I talk to friends and as I see kind of the, just how things are shaking out in our culture, there's a lot more people that used to call themselves Christians that now think Christianity is just kind of barbaric and grotesque. One of the reasons people hate Christianity and hate the Bible, because in the Old Testament, God judged sin very clearly. Um, As Christians that elevate the grace in Jesus, that doesn't mean we don't believe it was ever okay for God to judge sin. Do you follow me? Like, it's okay for God to judge sin. And we're thankful that he shows us grace through Jesus. God has the right to judge sin. God hates sin. Sin hurts people. We're killing ourselves when we sin. God doesn't want us to sin. He gives us grace in Jesus. But God has the right to judge sin. Do do I want to live under a society like in the Old Testament where you're getting killed all the time for all kinds of sins? I would personally not want to live there, but does God have the right to do that? Yes. God has the right to judge sin. We need to not be afraid of that. I know I've offended a lot of you this morning. I'd love to talk to you more before you run out and never come back to the church. You know, I'd love to give another hour conversation on this. But God has the right to judge sin. Sin is evil. It's wicked. And God judges it. Our hope is that he's gracious. If we trust in what God has done for us through Jesus, we can be set free. My question for you is, how does this shake out in the way you speak to people? Do people see you as the one who's judging, who's taking the authority of God, who's condemning, or is the Holy Spirit supernaturally working into your life this crazy, unnatural ability to hold to the truth and not be judgmental? That's our goal, and that is only possible as the gospel changes our hearts and the Holy Spirit makes us new. Guys, it's it's not possible in our own flesh. It's not possible in our own strength. We're either going to run to the we affirm everybody all the time side or we're going to run to the we judge everybody all the time side. Only by the Holy Spirit can the gospel melt our hearts so that we recognize I'm a sinner too. There is a right and wrong, but I'm going to show grace to you, but I'm not going to be afraid to challenge you too because I don't want you to hurt yourself. I mean, that's a hard line to walk. My prayer is that we become those kinds of supernatural people by the spirit working in us by our hearts being melted by what jesus did for us where we honestly say yeah i'm a sinner too and we thankfully say but jesus paid for it the next thing that james is going to hammer here is that we should submit to god's sovereignty i use the word sovereignty again it's kind of a big catch-all word for god being in charge of everything that's really what sovereign means it's an old word that you'd use for king god's king god rules he's in charge of everything again god gets to be god We're not. As modern Americans, we don't like that, right? We have a long history of throwing off kings, right? That's kind of what we do as Americans, but God is king. He's one king we cannot uh, revolt against. Or if we do, it doesn't go well. Um, Let's read verses 13 through 15. God is sovereign. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. 
Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So he's being very clear here. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. God is in charge. You are not. You're a mist. You're a puff of smoke. I have a picture here of a mist, of a vapor, someone breathing on a cold morning. I think it almost got that cold today, but not quite. Did anybody see their breath today? For those of you that grew up like I did in Central Texas, you may not even be aware of how this works. But when the air gets, <laughs> the air gets cold enough, you breathe. You can see it, but just for a second, right? And then it goes away. In Ecclesiastes, the author of Ecclesiastes says, your life is but a vapor. Your life is a mist. James goes a little harder, and he's like, you, you're a mist. You're a vapor, like a puff of smoke, like a puff of air. It's there for a second, and then it's gone. He's saying God is sovereign. God is king on his throne, and, and we're just a little ant, right? Like we're just there for a moment, and then we're gone. Again, self-esteem movement people, please don't take offense. God cares for you. He loves you, okay? Don't cry, but you're little, okay? You're little. You're just, you're just a puff. You're just a mist. He says God is ultimately in charge. Now, when he says that we should say God's will here, right? He says, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Does he mean just adding those words to everything you say? Is that what he's saying? I've got big plans. I'm going to do this or that next week. He says, no, 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 don't say that. Say, I've got big plans if God wills, right? Does that magically cover everything we do? I'm not trying to mock those of you that have a habit of saying if God wills. That's a great habit, but is that enough? Is that enough? He's talking about our heart. So we don't just get to sprinkle the magic words on it and fix the problem, right? I'm typing stuff into my calendar. Okay, I've got an appointment. If God wills, another appointment. If God wills, right? Like that doesn't, that doesn't just magically fix it. It's a heart that needs to submit to his sovereignty. God, you're sovereign. You're king. I'm a mist. I'm here for, for today. I'm gone tomorrow. I don't, I don't know how much time I've got. I'm thinking about it more and more, right? I'm at midlife now. Actually, by average age, I'm past midlife, I think. Average male age in America. So I'm past midlife now. I'm thinking a lot more about how many days I've got left. I'm planning to use those days well. And a bus may remove all those plans tomorrow, right? I don't, I don't know what the future holds. So we just take each day that he gives us. So thank you, Lord, for today. Thank you, Lord, for today. I think it's also really interesting to, to recognize that the word will, the word will is not just a kind of a force to act. That's how we normally use it. We talk about the will of a person, you know, the will to act, um, the will of God to act. It's more of a desire word. It's more of a wish word. Think of it more in terms of a a want, an emotional word. Do, Do you trust God with his wants? Do you submit to God's wants for the universe? I know I struggle with that. I tend to want to think of God in abstract terms like God's big, God's good, but I don't really know if he's nice or I can trust him. I'll tell you that the gospel proves that we can trust God, that he's good, that we can want what he wants. We can submit to his will, his desires, his wishes. He's kind. As James said earlier, in the climax of this one big sermon that James is, God gives more grace. He gives more grace, so submit to him. He gives more grace. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So submit yourselves to God. Trust him. You can trust him with your future. You can trust him with today. 
You can trust him with him cutting your days short. You can trust him with him letting you live longer than you wanted to. You can trust him. Submit to him. How do we do do this? Um, I think of the example in in marriage. I've been married 22 years now, and what I've seen over the years in marriage is, do we have conflict? Yes. But as, as we love each other and mutually submit and mutually encourage each other and want each other's best, we begin to actually want what the other person wants in a, in a weird way. I don't know if you all have seen that. Um, that's a beautiful thing, I think, of marriage. You kind of melt into each other. You know, it's not like you stop being who you are, but you kind of begin to take on who the other person is. And, and I see that as what it looks like to walk with Jesus. We begin wanting what Jesus wants. We don't really at first, but the more we give ourselves over to him and trust him and walk with him, we begin seeing that it's good and seeing the fruit of that work out in our life, and then we, we begin to want what he wants a little more the next time. And sure, we take steps forward, we take steps back, but a, but a life of faith and submission to God is trusting in his sovereignty that it's good, that it's good wishes, it's good desires, that he's a good king, that he is benevolent, that he is kind, that he is gracious. I think this translates into our prayer life, into being praying people. And I want to encourage you, I think kind of you can divide us into two halves. There's those of us that are spontaneous people. I'm a spontaneous person, so I struggle with formal prayer. Over the years, I've gotten better at praying without ceasing, praying all the time, praying the scriptures. But what I've found is when I insert formal, structured prayer into my life, that feeds the spontaneous prayer. And for those of you that are the opposite personality, I'd say if if you just pray formally, if you just pray in structured ways, you need to remember that you can talk to God anytime with any words, no matter what, he's always there. And so as you learn to pray without ceasing and pray informally and pray like a child that's just running up to talk to his daddy, that's going to grow you in your formal prayer times as well. So I'd say this, this shapes out our submission to God's sovereignty, shapes out in us being praying people. It also shapes out in us being people of the word. We talked earlier as we talked about God's authority. We trust that God speaks with authority through his word. And so we want to be Bible people. It's, uh, we're a Bible church, right? That's in our middle name. That means we study the Bible. We, we want to hear what God has to say. And so we listen to him through the scriptures. We try to understand it in context, right? We don't just jerk random verses out at, you know, random. Here's my, here's my verse, but we try to understand what it really means and submit what he has to say to us. I think a third way that we submit to God's authority in our life, it's prayer, understanding the Bible. A third way is in community, in Christian community. Just a little example of this. Um, so I, I usually listen to the recording of, of what I preach just for the sake of trying to get better at preaching, right? And the first couple of years, I had a hard time with that. Because I don't know if you've noticed, but I have kind of a weird nasally voice. Have you all ever noticed that before? But I didn't know that until I started recording my voice, right? Have you ever heard your voice recorded? Anybody ever heard it? Some of you? And you were shocked, weren't you? Like, that's not what I sound like. Yes, yes it is, okay? (laughs) The way your voice sounds in your head is not the same way it sounds to everybody else, okay? Just let that soak in for a minute. You speak every day, unless you're some kind of monk, but most of you, you speak every day, and you hear yourself every day, that's not what your voice sounds like. None of you really know what your voice sounds like, but everybody else does. And that's the beauty of Christian community, right? As you're, as you're seeking to submit to God's sovereignty in your life, listen to what other Christians say. Now, don't make them your sovereign. God is still sovereign, but 
listen to what they say. Look for that perspective because we have this tendency to filter out things, right? I, can, I have this tendency to read the Bible and underline my favorite verses. You ever do that? Underlining people? I'm going to underline my favorite verses. I'm going to filter out the stuff I don't want to hear. And that's the funny thing about Christian friends. They can be honest with us and, and tell us things that we're not seeing and challenge us and sharpen us. That's why it's important to live in Christian community. We harp on this a lot at this church, not because it's the most important of the ways you grow in your faith, but it's one that our culture is the worst at. It's just one that we struggle at. We're hyper-individualistic. We don't do community with each other, right? That's part of why we stink at marriage so bad. That's why we don't know how to be married, because we don't know how to live in community with anybody, much less someone we're with all the time, right? So we need to grow as Christians in understanding how to live in community with other people, listen to other people's voices. Okay, let's go to the, the last point here before we run out of time. We also need to submit to God's agenda. Submit to God's agenda. He's kind of continuing on with some of what he said already. In verse 16, he's continuing what he was talking about, about God's will, making plans without God. He says, as it is, verse 16, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So what he's saying is when you make plans and disregard God's will, wishes, and sovereignty, you're boasting, and it's evil, okay? Again, James doesn't pull any punches, right? This kind of boasting, this pretending that you're in control of your universe is boasting, it's arrogant, it's evil. He goes on then, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. Again, these seem random, but they're all connected to this idea of are you humbling yourself before God? Are you submitting to him? Are you making yourself God? So he kind of gives two sides of the same coin here when it comes to submitting to God's agenda. Are you boasting and saying, I know what to do and I'm going to do it? Or are you holding back and saying, I'm just going to trust God? I don't want to be that boasting kind of person, so I'm just going to sit back and let God do his thing. I'll watch and wait, right? Those are, those are two sides of the same coin. Those are two kinds of sin where we, where we, don't, we don't do what we should be doing. One is a boasting activity of taking charge, taking the reins, and the other is pulling back and saying, well, I don't know what to do, so I'll just let God do it. I'm just going to be passive. James has hammered us a lot with that, right? Faith works. Faith acts. We should move. We should do things. It should look like something in our life. We should submit to God's agenda. So what does he mean when he talks about knowing the right thing to do and failing to do it. First of all, I just want to point out that this word, the right thing to do, is a, is a word that culturally can mean the beautiful thing. talked a couple of weeks ago about the, the community apologetic, the, the defense we give for the faith by living a beautiful life. Um, when we live a healthy life where we actually live in balance with God's law and submission to it, we do what God says, that's a beautiful thing. It's weird to our culture, but it, it becomes beautiful. There's order and discipline there. And where we have joy and humility, we can laugh about ourselves, self-deprecating humor. We can be lighthearted because you know the grace that God gives you in Christ. Again, that's a beautiful thing. So there's this broader Greek concept in Greek culture of the life well-lived or the beautiful life. And that's really kind of the word that he's keying here. Not just knowing the right thing to do, like, should I murder or should I not murder, right? It's not like that kind of binary right or wrong. It's, it's this kind of collective idea of, doing good, beautiful things with your life. You're going to do beautiful things with your life. You're going to make good decisions. You're going to live in a healthy way. Are you going to help others to love God more? Are you going to love God? Are you going to love others? That's, that's the kind of thing he's talking about. And then the other thing I want to address is when I read this verse, because I'm a little indecisive, 
Um, when I read this verse, I, I tend to think he's saying, if you're not sure what to do, you're in big trouble, you're a sinner, right? If you're indecisive, you might hear it that way too. Uh, I don't know, have you ever been to an airport and you're in a hurry and you're having trouble reading the signs because it's like left, right, forward, backward, and, and you get kind of freaked out? Has ever happened to you? Raise your hand if that's ever happened to you. A couple of you, okay. Um, that's that's kind of like how I read this verse sometimes. I think he's saying, you know the good thing to do, but you don't do it. And I'm thinking, well, God, I don't always know what to do, right? Like sometimes I'm indecisive. I found a picture here of one of those crossroads where you've got signs going in different directions. That's kind of how I'm hearing it. And I just want to say, I don't, I don't think that's what he's talking about here. He's not saying if there's seven choices and they're all beautiful and good, and you're not sure which is the best one, you're having a hard time figuring out God's perfect will for your life. Have you ever said that before? I want to know God's will for my life, and I'm just not sure if he wants me to wear the green sock or the blue sock. That is not what he's talking about, okay? It's not what he's talking about. Trust that he's good and move. Love God, love other people. This is more what he's talking about here. Here's a picture of Gollum. He's been coming back to this theme throughout the book of James. This theme is that we don't love people. We're hateful towards others. We're twisted when we hold on to these desires and won't let go of them. So Gollum is this literary example of this. You know, Tolkien was a believer, and he saw um, how sin twists us. And he works this example into the life of Gollum, who was normal at one time, but he held on to this beautiful ring and wouldn't let go, and that kind of began to twist him begin to make him into a monster. And he couldn't let go of the selfish desire. So that's what it's talking about when it says, you know the right thing and you don't do it, and that's sin. Or you boast about knowing what to do, but you really don't know what to do. Again, that's evil, that's sin. So when we allow these selfish desires, and I don't know what it is for you that distracts you. It's, I think it's different for different people, but are these things that we believe will save us, it's these things we believe will give us true love, that'll give us, uh, establish us, that'll give us respect, that'll help us to grow, that'll help us to be everything that we want to be. It's whatever that thing may be. It may be your job, right? Your, your job, you're just thinking, but I'm almost there. This is the job. I'm going to make it. I, I, I'll arrive with this job. Or maybe it's just the next relationship, right? You've had a bad relationship before. That was different. They were a loser. This next person that's going to be the relationship that's going to fix everything, right? And you're, you're just running from one relationship to the next. And God wants you to hear that you need to let go of those selfish desires. You need to let go of thinking that the next relationship is going to save you, that the next job is going to save you, that that addiction, that pleasure, that, that, that numbing of yourself is going to save you, that identity in your own desires is going to save you, whatever that is. You'd be willing to let go of that and get online with God's agenda. I get it because he's gracious. It's not because he's just trying to ruin all your fun. God gives more grace. He opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. So submit yourselves to God. Not submit yourselves to God. It's going to be miserable, but trust me. It's submit yourself to God. He's gracious. He's gracious. You can trust him. You can trust him. He's good. My question for you is, what are maybe the little things what are, what are the little things you could do to demonstrate that you're trusting God? Sometimes we just want to do big things, right? I, I see this a lot of times in marriage counseling. We struggle, you know, men want to serve their wives as long as it's glorious and awesome, but they have, strub, you know, struggle, have trouble doing it in little daily 
boring ways? What, what are just little boring ways we could trust God, that we can bless other people, that we can encourage other people? Maybe not big things we can boast about, big plans we can make, but just small, beautiful, right things that we could do. What are those things? What are those next steps the Holy Spirit's prodding you to do right now? I would listen to his voice. I want to wrap up as we think about what it looks like for our faith to submit is just to look back to Jesus again because we're continually hammered by James. And James encourages us, as I said. We finally got that that grace encouragement in verses 6 and 7. God is gracious, so you can submit to him. But again, we fail. We trip. We stumble. We have a hard time being humble. We have a hard time submitting to his will. So, so remember Jesus, who, who in the garden in Matthew chapter 26, right before he went to the cross, was praying to the Father, and he said, Father, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. But the cup was a metaphor for suffering. Um, it's part of Hebrew literature. It's real common. So he's talking about drinking the cup of suffering, going to the cross for his people. But he said, if there's any other way, I don't, I don't want to suffer. And so that's a beautiful example to us. We can, we can pray that way to God. God, if there's any other way, take this from me. If there's any other way, take this from me. But, but Jesus said, yeah, not my will, your will be done. He submitted to the Father's will. For the, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. And he did that for us. He did that for us. So even as we fail to submit to God, we have a Savior who submitted for us, who gave himself for us, and that's our hope. Let me pray for us, and we'll respond in worship together. God, we thank you that Jesus submitted. And God, you know we failed. You know we struggle to trust you. We struggle to do what's right. We struggle to want what you want. We struggle to listen to your word. We'd rather dispense it ourselves and become a lawgiver. God, help us not to judge you. Help us not to judge your word. Help us not to judge the amount of time that we have or our circumstances, but help us to submit to you and your will. We pray that as we do that, that you would show us more and more the grace that you offer us in Jesus. We pray this that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen.